I found this article, 17 products from the 2010s that seem like a good idea, but we shouldn't carry them forward into 2020. Let's see if we agree. How do you feel about hoverboards? Uh, I'll pass. They're just a concussion waiting to happen. Also on the list, Snuggies. Isn't that the squirrel suit looking thing? Um, How about selfie sticks? I'm not a big fan of the selfie sticks myself. Look, it's useful when you need it. But the people that just like, how do you have that with you? You just carry it with you at all times. How about the right on suitcase? How do you feel about that? I don't even know how that works. It's like, that's fine until you have to load it up. This is the person that's flying with me and trying to come down the aisle of the airplane. Is that checked baggage? I mean, can you ride that like onto the plane? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome back to Touchpoint. This is episode number 153, the first of the decade. Well, two things to that, Reed. First of all, last week's episode was the first of the decade, even though we recorded it last year. Exactly. I know everybody thinks we recorded on New Year's Day. We did not. (laughs) This is the first recording of the decade, I should say. The other thing I wanted to say is, haven't you heard that this is actually not the first year of the decade? Because you count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then 11 is the next round. So technically, 2021 is the first year of the new decade. Do you also claim that you're two on your first birthday because you're (laughs) starting year two? Okay, fair point. (laughs) Apparently, this is the first of the decade. Anyway, we're getting off track here. Uh, That, of course, is Chris. I'm Reed. We're here for uh, another lap around. This is uh, starting year three, I guess, technically. Third anniversary is still a little few episodes away, but technically third calendar year. Appreciate all the support and all of the uh, great feedback. We had a wonderful 2019. The show grew immensely. If you wanted to hear more about those stats and figures and all that kind of fun stuff, you can check out episode 152. Touchpoint.health is the website. You can learn a little bit more about this show and other ones like it. we got a lot of great stuff, a lot of great new content coming out. Start 2020, so jump over there and check that out. Sign up for the TPS report, our weekly email of all uh, things curated in the industry. It's awesome. It comes out every Monday morning. We've got a really great show today. It's near and dear to my heart, uh, and I'll explain why right after this break. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. 
And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. All right, so uh, today we are talking about taxonomy, which if you listen to, is that the last episode, I guess? Yeah, the last episode where we picked our our favorite shows from uh, the prior calendar year, 2019. Uh, I actually picked one about taxonomy and hashtags, I think was also in there. So anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about a specifically user-centric taxonomy today. Yeah, Reed, I was involved recently in a website project that really focused on user-centric taxonomy. And when we first started to talk about it, I mean, we all kind of know what taxonomy is, but I didn't really know what that meant to be user-centric. So that led me to do some research and some of the research we're going to talk about today. Well, there you go. So, all right, starting off again, just a level set. What is taxonomy? What does that mean? There's a lot of different ways people describe it, but I think generally what it is is a way to name or label things and organize things that are similar together so that people can, when they're going through, in our world, digital stuff like websites or social media or whatever, they can find things better. It really it really focuses on three major things, Reed, to make content easier to find by browsing, searching, or asking. Mm-hmm. It should be focused on helping people complete online tasks. And then lastly, it's got to connect with technology. So technology can be used to help search that a lot better. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's an organization plan, if you will, method. It's great for, what is it? A type people that, uh, (laughs) no, but, but realistically it's, it's to allow people to find what they need quicker to your point. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think we're going to have to think more and more about this as time goes, because at least in my mind, data become, there's more of it. The individual pieces are bigger and larger and file sizes are bigger and larger and all that kind of stuff. And people are getting smarter and smarter about how they look for things uh, where before, you know, historically it was a lot of layman's terms. Well, now you have to have the layman's terms plus you know, what we would consider more the clinical definitions and things like that, that maybe people didn't know historically, but because of advertising and the way the internet is set up, you know, we've got to be able to kind of serve both. So it becomes more and more important to think about, well, how do we, how do we structure all of this stuff? So I'm not having to reinvent the wheel every time I need a new web presence for uh, whatever reason, whether that be a campaign or a facility or whatever it is. Did you know, Reed, that there are four different types of taxonomy in general, when you think about taxonomy on websites and things. Let's talk about that. So I know um, you found, you know, kind of a great article that, that walks through these kind of four different types. And so I don't know that I've ever thought about it in that way. Let's go through these and, and talk about how they differ a little bit in pros and cons. And when we talk about taxonomy, also think about like the history of, of the way web browsers have worked over the years. Um, when we talk about the first level of taxonomy or the first uh, type, it's called a flat taxonomy. A flat taxonomy is also known as sort of an unlayered taxonomy. And it's really simply like a list of items. I I think back to like early Yahoo, 
right? Where you went on to Yahoo and it had a list of different things that you can kind of click on to search for. That's more like a flat taxonomy, right? Everything's kind of weighted equally. And it's common to put the most important item on first of the list. Or sometimes in A to Z, it's alphabetical. Seems like that would make the most sense for uh, smaller, simple websites, you know, things that are, are super focused. Maybe it's a topical, you know, a page around a certain topic, for example. And so you have kind of subtopics on that page or maybe places where, again, around the simplicity, it's not a real deep topic. This is often used, like you just said, really simple websites or even microsites. Uh, I launched a brand microsite just to promote a new brand. And that was a very simple flat taxonomy. Across the top, you had a couple of words. You were able to click on them and go to different parts of that large one-page site. But when things get a little complex, which they often do online, flat taxonomies kind of lose lose the power of that because it's built on a list of items. And there's only so many lists of items that you can display. I've been to a couple of websites where you click on a link and it drops down 300 things <laughs> to choose from. That's not good. Except for on a mobile device. It's awesome then. <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly but the thing is is that you know the taxonomy has moved on from there which leads us to the second one so the second one is is based around you know kind of a hierarchy right and so it's an arrangement of categories if you will within the interface of a website and this is probably how we think of a lot of the websites that we work on now sometimes they're still like like the flat taxonomy they're in an order of importance or status potentially moving up in the hierarchy you're getting to those subcategories as you kind of branch down. Yeah. So like imagine on a hospital website, if you click on locations and then you have the option of, do you want to look at hospitals? Do you want to look at clinics? Do you want to look at urgent care centers? That's sort of a hierarchy taxonomy. The deeper you go, you can get more and more concise. And it's almost like follows this, this tree structure, so to speak. It sometimes is... I think that locations example is probably the best, but you know we also see it where you, you know people have done it in in a structure around you know audience types, right? So you have like the four patients, four providers, or careers, right? And so you can go under careers, and you have nursing careers versus allied health versus you know things like that. And if you think about the file structure of that, uh, if you can, you know, those that have been in WordPress or other CMS uh, type systems, you'll see them nested that way. Like, and that's how the menu then is built out from a navigation standpoint. That's kind of how you can picture, you know, how that works and looks. This is really helpful if you know what you're looking for, but there are some challenges, right? Because a lot of times people don't know where to look for information. Sometimes, and I found this on my hospital website, they're looking for treatments for breast cancer, and they're not sure, should they go to the cancer section? Should they go to locations? Women's health. It could really quickly become kind of confusing, which leads to the next kind of taxonomy called a network taxonomy, which it organizes content both hierarchically and associatively. So that's where you get to like a page where let's say maybe you look under breast cancer as a condition on your website and it says, well, here are the doctors that treat that and here are the lo- here are the locations in which you could get breast cancer treatment. What that is, is that association of different types of hierarchy together. Because obviously, like in your example of looking for breast cancer, you want that information in all of those places. You need people to be able to find it regardless of how they think they should get there, where it's not quite as rigid as, you know, like that traditional hierarchy may be. Well, I always say when you're doing good websites, you never 
go, reach a dead end, right? You always, hopefully you give information to get them to guide them on to the next thing that they're looking for. When you create just a general content structure of your site, that's a great way to think of it. It's like, once you get to that page, where else can they go? What potentially can they look for? But there's yet another level of taxonomy that's on top of that, Read The facet taxonomy. This allows you to assign an item to multiple taxonomies. It's a little bit like network taxonomy, I guess, in a sense, but it enables the classification to be ordered in multiple ways rather than in a single predetermined order, as in kind of that strict uh, hierarchy, if you will. So it's a little bit different. So you can kind of, I guess, associate it with multiple groups. Then suddenly your your content is kind of separated from the navigation, so to speak. Because if you're searching for, let's say, breast cancer on under the locations, it might also allow you to get other information that's not related to locations. But there's a challenge with that, particularly when it comes to how websites present themselves to the, to the search engines. Oftentimes, the content can be considered to be duplicative, and you have to be really careful about that for SEO purposes, right? Especially as you think about search results, sometimes it gets a little muddy when you're browsing versus searching like on a site and kind of what those results look like um, and making sure that, you know, it's real clear about, you know, what information you're seeing, where you're going to go, how it all fits together, things like that. When you're a user using a website trying to find information, you don't think about this stuff at all. Really, what you're trying to do is you're trying to navigate the content, the site somehow, or multiple sites, or even social media and email, whatever, to try to get to that information. And so that really leads to this whole concept of how things are changing and how we have to be more user-centric. And why don't we talk about that after this next break? Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. So when you're thinking about taxonomy, there's a reason that it's important. As you think about building new websites, building new online properties, landing pages, or microsites, or whatever they may be, there's actual trends out there. And you found this great article, Six Website Trends You Need to Know in 2020. Uh, we're going to hit all six of these. We'll probably spend a little bit more time on a couple of them. But relative to why, you know, what's the impact in, uh, of taxonomy and how does that kind of interface with these particular trends? Because I think taxonomy, again, as content grows and becomes more robust, is going to become a bigger and bigger challenge or, or focus. And so a lot of these trends are related to you know, new ways, new technologies, or what have you. And the first one is about voice user interfaces, or VUIs. Um, it's a new three-letter acronym we can add to our list. VUIs. 
really what it is, is is how we're starting to use the voice now to search things. You could search, you know, the internet, you could start to search websites. And this is not a new thing. Voice user interfaces have been around since the American Disabilities Act a long time ago. But VUIs have a serious impact on the way taxonomy works, because People search and look through content. They do a lot of different things differently when they talk as opposed to when they type. And two, I mean, you got to think, and we've talked about this before, but those products, Alexa, Siri, Google Home, et cetera, return like one answer. You know, it's not a search result. It's not pulling up a web page. There's nothing to scan, right? So the associated content and stuff like that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so it's a little bit of a different way to think about that. The second one here that they mentioned, uh, video content, obviously going to continue to grow. Uh, Traffic's going to continue to go up. Video needs to be stored and categorized, much like all the other content. It's uh, something that's getting bigger and there's more of it. And so obviously it's going to have to play a role. Yep. And in the first year of our podcast, we did a a podcast around video and we said a video is worth 1 million words. I think that was the title of our podcast. Think about that though. What we were trying to put forth is that you could capture a lot more content in a video. Well, if you're going to have to now sort and categorize your, your video content using words that search engines can see, suddenly your taxonomy can get really challenging. Another thing is pricing. People are expecting to go to their websites, not only answer their questions, but now answer the answer the question, what does it cost? More times than not, this is impacting hospital websites directly. But this isn't new either, right? Reed? There's other websites that do pricing structures, right? There is. And hospitals don't. So let's just move on to the next <laughs> one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, really, we don't. But we're going to have to because of some of the, uh, the rulings that have come down and things like that. We're going to around pricing transparency. That's another episode for another day. But when you start adding cost into the equation and things like that, that's a whole different scenario, even coupled back to the first one, which was uh, around voice and people looking for certain. Another one, when we've talked a lot about this over the last 18 months, probably in a couple of different episodes, but is AI and chatbots. So the stat here is, according to Gartner, uh, 25% of customer service and support operations will integrate virtual customer assistants or VCAs uh, or chatbot technology uh, across engagement channels by 2020. So that's now. So that's up less than 2% in 2017. So in just a couple of years, you know, we're, we're up 20 to 25%, uh, depending on what you're, you know, probably what industry you're talking about. So I think you'll see more and more of the AI chatbot experience. We've been very fortunate to have uh, one of those as a sponsor for a long time on the show. And so I think we've got to understand what AI means for, for taxonomy. Another technology change that's important, mobile first, And again, back to how people search differently on voice as opposed to their desktop computers. People search differently on their mobile phones than they do on their desktops. And sometimes they use voice, right? There's oftentimes I search the internet using voice on my iPhone. As we start to look at mobile being the primary way, I think they said what over 51% of global internet traffic comes from a mobile device now. That's crazy. Over 51%. That's a big number. And I think we've seen that mobile number continue to rise, especially as it relates to hospital websites and, and things like that. But you do search in a much different 
way. Again, this kind of hard, you know, ladders back up to voice again. And then the last one here, self-selection. So people love to choose their own uh, adventure, if you will. And so they like that that gratification, the self-selection tools. We've seen that some with the drop downs like IMA, patient, job seeker, et cetera. And it kind of then populates the next drop down box, et cetera. It allows people to kind of choose, you know, how they move forward. And so, again, chatbots, like we just talked about, um, are kind of in that vein, offer that self-selection piece as well. From a taxonomy standpoint, structure your content to be able to work in these fashions that allow people to, you know, it's not just that super linear path, I guess. But these are all technology things, Reed, technology impacts, right? Everything we talked about, well, with the exception of like, let's say technical and content trends that we're seeing, what really at the end of the day is driving the way taxonomy is changing is are the users themselves. The the way we constantly search for things now, the way we're using all of our multiple devices, our iWatch, our phones, however we're looking for content now, the taxonomy is changing. So that gets us to the crux of the matter here, which is how do we design taxonomy in a user-centric way? And I found an article that actually is called Designing a User-Centric Taxonomy. That uh, why don't we kind of end the episode before we go to the interview to talk about this a little bit? This article is really interesting. There's a lot to it other than just this this one piece that we're going to talk about. So be sure to to check that out in the in the show notes. There's three kind of uh, components, if you will, to designing a user centric taxonomy. The first one is technical proficiency. That is how familiar users are with what they're searching for. And we we talked that a lot. You even mentioned it earlier in the show. The way people are searching hospital websites, some of them could not have could could be very simple looking for you know medical information. Others could be using very technical, complex conversations or or words, I should say. Um, users with a great deal of knowledge and familiarity will use that specific jargon, and users with less technical knowledge are going to use more general terms. Well, you have to understand what you, the proficiency of people using your website are going to be. You might even have to define that before you even build your website, right? It's probably all of the above to some degree. Kind of depends on what, even within areas of the website. In the careers piece of the website, it may be very different than the services piece of the website, et cetera. Uh, They also talk about user goals. So what users are looking to achieve in the uh, information environment. Um, So they have different things on here around queries. So navigational queries, for example, users searching to reach a specific area of the website. You know, one example is, is like, you know, uh, they're trying to get to a specific portal or area of the website. So they're trying to navigate uh, to that area. Informational queries. So they're, they're looking to acquire specific information. Example could be where a location is or um, you know what types of services fall underneath the breast center, for example, back to our example earlier. And then ultimately transactional queries. So they're trying to find, you know, or users are sur- searching to perform a specific task. And so this could be uh, like careers, like we just talked about, uh, people applying for jobs, for example. Or pay by bill or whatever it might be. The third thing that's really important, too, is understanding the query formulation. And this really gets into understanding how people 
are searching, what words they're using. And that's why a lot of times when you're looking at rebuilding a website or you're looking at what keywords people are finding your site from, that's around how they're, what words are they using to get to you, to find you? That gives you some insight into the patterns that they're using. This becomes really important and a critical part of when you set up uh, a chatbot kind of conversation because you have to really understand the wording of the sentences that they're using. That really gives you insight into what their their query is. So again, there's a whole lot more to this particular article, but you've got to understand what goals and and kind of who, and this is kind of back to some of that persona development a little bit. Who's coming there? Why are they coming there? What are they interested in? Again, their technical proficiency, what their goal and you know how they're going to search for it. If you're doing it right around the user, you constantly go back and check to see how they're using your site. Because even if you've worked on a hospital website over the last couple of years, you know people are searching for things differently now. They're using different terms. There might be a new language that they use. They may be using it, searching in different ways. That it becomes sort of a living, breathing, important part of your website. I actually, like I mentioned to you just recently, have been on a project where we used a user-centric approach to rebuilding or restructuring the site. And I had a chance to sit down with one of the lead user experience architects on the site, Susan Iovanetti. For those of you who may have caught me back at the Healthcare Internet Conference, she and I spoke about the about taxonomy around the user and actually defining your website around the user. Well, we get into taxonomy and a variety of other things in this interview coming right up. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I'm talking with my dear friend, Susan Iovanetti. Did I say that right? No. Iovanetti. Iovanetti. Yes. I apologize that it's I okay. mispronounced your name. It is hard. How do you spell it? I-O-V-E-N-I-T-T-I. I get a lot of L's uh, because of the way that fonts work. Yeah. The I, uppercase I looks like a lowercase L, so it's not a typo. <laughs> it's not a typo. Well, Susan, thanks for being on the show today. Um, we, You and I were just, we're, we're actually recording live at the Healthcare yep. Internet Conference, and we spoke yesterday about a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart, particularly in the work that we do together. So I'm looking forward to chatting with you about it today. But before we jump in, um, a, a lot of people listening in may not know who you are. You want to share a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, so I've been working in the digital space for about 18 years now. I have started my uh, career as um, kind of in the more in the design space, but started picking up a lot more uh, UX work. So right now I work with a company called The Burnt Group, and we are based out of Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm the director of digital strategy and user experience there. Prior to working at The Burnt Group, and I've been there a few years now, um, I've worked in the e-commerce space, mm. and prior to that, I worked um, in the government healthcare space, and then I had a longer stint in the nonprofit space. Oh, wow. So I feel like I can really bring a lot of diversity of thought from these different sectors into the work that we mm-hmm. do, um, and it's really exciting to be able to understand some of the demands and needs that come up in the e-commerce space and see how those are reflected over into the work that we're doing with our health care clients. So mm-hmm. I love, you know, having spent a lot of time 
working on transactional things, I really feel like mm-hmm. I have a good handle and understanding on what's needed. Well, absolutely. In world. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we talk a lot about consumerism and healthcare, yes. and that really is kind of the the um, the preferences that people take from the e-commerce space are now kind of bleeding into their experiences. Now, you you say you you work on digital strategy, but you're kind of one of these rare unicorns. I've been I've had the privilege of working with you for you. over a year now. So you do digital strategy, you do UX UI, you do content strategy, you do a lot of things. Yeah, I, just to add into that, we do a lot of um, personalization and optimization work on existing properties, mm. um, and then all of the business analysis and kind of talking about what technology can do, how do we make sure that we're aligned with the tools that we're using, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, getting out with users and trying to gather information through research uh, tactics. Mm-hmm. Well, I found out something new about you yesterday, too, that realized why we think a lot alike. It's that we both, at one point, studied architecture. Yes. And I think that that's kind of the basis of really this work. And it's interesting what we're finding on the digital space, right? This sort of this confluence of people doing various different things that are now starting to work together and it's creating a better output. And that's really the kind of the thrust of what we talked about yesterday, which was really about defining a really good, robust back-end content strategy. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, Because as we started off yesterday when we were talking, there's a lot of different ways that people define content strategy. Uh, and, And in the work that we've done together, we've kind of came to our own definition, I guess, collectively. But you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, content strategy is is something that is really, really important to organizations. But I think where we spend most of the time focusing right now is more on the front end, the kind of how do we create and generate more content? How do we get this out there? How are we going to pull new content that someone in another department is asking for us to put into a site? How are we going to work this into our marketing efforts? And that's really great and it's very much needed Mm -hmm. but the work there on the front end can be amplified by more focus on back-end content strategy and so you and I talked about that yesterday about how important it is to start to think about the way that content is structured within your CMS and the way that you're organizing and creating taxonomy within your content management system that can really be used anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, just back to your point about uh, kind of focusing on architecture, the back-end content strategy really provides that architectural structure that really enables your content strategy to be able to push content out into the world in a more efficient and uh, more robust at times mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So, and we've done a couple of episodes on taxonomy. We've talked about that a little bit, but I, I think that still is one of those words that when we say it, either there are people either they don't really know what that means or their eyes kind of glaze over. You want to share a little bit about your thoughts around taxonomy and the taxonomic structure that's important? Yeah, I mean, I think there are different ways of applying taxonomy um, throughout the site or throughout the digital ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, taxonomy to me is really about looking at what you have and creating common groupings that then are labeled and structured in a way that makes sense to your end user Hmm. so that then things can be kind of grouped together and aligned in ways that meet what people need or make connections between content that is relevant. So 
When I'm looking at, or folks on my team are looking at taxonomy, we're looking at, you know, obviously different levels of taxonomy that you might have within a a system and making relevant connections, but we're really trying to put what the user's expectations and needs are first um, so that we're working to deliver a taxonomy structure that can then meet what they need. Mm. I think we're also looking at the ways that, you know, taxonomy as as a structure within your content management system also allows for more innovation in the way that you create the assets that you have, you the elements that you have to build your site off of. And actually, one of the things that I think is most interesting about taxonomy, because I also do a lot of work in um, operations with my team, is the efficiency mm-hmm. that taxonomy can start mm-hmm. to bring to strapped teams in an organization, the way that we can really leverage uh, the technology most effectively Mm -hmm. to then create efficiency for teams, make it easier so that the folks that are working on things can have the right tools at their fingertips. So you mentioned a couple of things I want to kind of drill in on. The first one is interesting to me um, and something I I really, uh, since we started working together, I never even thought about it this way. You said creating your taxonomic structure, your taxonomy based on the user's needs. Now I work in a hospital system. I've done it for over a decade now, uh, different hospital systems. And you know, it's really, we, we like to, we like to create taxonomy that makes sense to the physicians, et cetera, right? So, or whatever, you know, it could be like cardiac or, or whatever, whatever service line it is. But you're saying that it actually should be developed in a way that you're use- that makes sense to the user. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those are the consumers of your site. I know that physicians and other key stakeholders in an organization can sometimes have the louder voice in the room. Mm-hmm they're not probably using the site in a way unless they're referring and we need to create specific structures that work in that way for them. But I think the the key here is making sure that you're in touch with what your user expectations are when you're building those structures mm-hmm. so that you're not putting tags and grouping out there that don't make sense to people. Mm-hmm. And I think from that perspective, we really try to take a look at things and, and put the user need first and then have those conversations with those stakeholders to say, we understand what you're saying, but we need to meet at the in the middle here and understand that people aren't going to find things if we start to label with these you know, very complex labels. And then we move over to something that is much more user. We can still make those connections on the back end. We can still make the connection of, you know, a a very specific diagnosis or a very specific condition name, but let's make it a little bit more user-friendly to what the user is expecting to find and group it in a way where they're making logical connections. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's such a, such a great insight, right? To think about that. And uh, it really kind of blew my mind a little bit when I first heard it because I was like, wow, I have always thought taxonomy is the way we structure our stuff, but it's really around the user. The other thing you said about it was that it sometimes can yield new types of content, yes. right? So tell us a little bit about that. Well, sometimes as you're going through the process of creating structure, you realize that you have gaps in what the user need is. So really thinking about and putting yourselves uh, in the user's shoes, having a little bit more empathy for what they may be going through as they're looking for 
care, as they're looking for more information for a loved one, thinking about what that information is that they need to get and what they need to get out of that content. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, some areas where we see this sometimes is really good at getting people in, in and connected with locations in their area, really good at getting people connected with providers in their area. But they schedule and there's no there's nothing leading up to that appointment mm. so that might be an area where you see a gap mm -hmm. where the user sometimes feels a little bit unsupported they mm -hmm. feel like there's nothing there well through content and through the appropriate structure you can start to serve that in mm -hmm. a really meaningful way to people and in turn boost the trustworthiness of your brand. Absolutely. And you know, the thing is, what you're talking about here is something that Reed and I have been talking a lot on the podcast about is now we're getting past what market digital marketing typically does. And now we're getting into the overall experience. I mean, just think about that gap between you make an appointment to when you actually show up. That is often overlooked by the people that are managing the websites or the 100%. social media or what ha what have you. And sometimes it's relegated to a whole different team. Yes. And so one of the things that we surfaced yesterday in our conversation was the fact that people that are responsible for content, they exist throughout the organization. You want to share a little bit more about your thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you kind of said it in that there are content creators throughout your organization. Anyone who has a touch point with a consumer in some way, shape, or form is a content marketer. Mm -hmm. And I think what we really need to do, and you and I talked about this yesterday, is look to break down silos and make sure that all of those folks are coming to the table when we're having content discussions or when we're having discussions about specific flows of a consumer through their journey, through their touch points in the with the organization. It's really, really important to have folks in the room that are also and there may be some resistance, but that are also putting the patient, putting the consumer at the center of the table and really thinking about what they need, not what about their departmental needs are. And I know that can be really difficult sometimes. That can be really hard, but I think giving it a try is definitely worth a go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and kind of, and, and the backend content strategy concept that we, well, it's not a new concept, it's been around, but when we talked about it, it really gives a sort of a common language that we can all start to understand. At least that's what I found in my experience. When we start to define uh, things in the user's kind of framework, and that gives us a, almost like a, a consistent language in which we're talking about how we want to develop content. And it gives us the ability to really talk with other people like the call centers, like the physicians, like the nurses or whoever is responsible for that content uh, together to kind of piece it all together and create more of a seamless content experience, which leads to all the things that we talk about, efficiency, etc. What I think is also really important when we, th when we think about this is that everybody really does have the consumer, the patient at the center of their, of their mm -hmm. mind. And, and that actually enables us when we're all aligned around a strategy to really be able to ward off some of those things that may come up that are out of left field. So that really helps us as we're trying to even, as different departments may be trying, or service lines may be trying to make decisions about, well, how should we deal with this question that's come in? How should we respond to that? When we all have a common strategy, 
-hmm. that we're working around in the organization, it's much easier to know how to handle those decisions. Mm -hmm. If something comes in and it just seems really like it, there's not, it's not going to be worth it, or it's really not aligned at all, it's better to be able to take that to the table and say, this isn't aligned, right? This is not really where we're trying to go. Or to look at it and say, is this something that we actually maybe have been missing mm. that we need to start to bring into the strategy? Mm -hmm. And we need to start sharing that and socializing that around the organization. So what you're saying, in effect, is uh, it gives us the sort of the general framework, right, of, of how to, to develop content for our users. But it also allows us that flexibility and that, that, that again, the framework, I guess it's the best word to say about it, to iterate and build and, and follow, follow where those, find where those gaps are and other things. Is that right? Yeah, and I think having a really strong back-end content strategy also allows us to extend categories of content mm -hmm. in a way within the system that's much easier than in times past. Mm -hmm. um, I've been in situations where... We've gotten requests from other departments in the organization that I'm working with, and we've all kind of looked at each other and scratched our heads to say, well, how in the world would this fit in? Mm -hmm. Having a stronger structure on the back end, having that as a way of, oh, we've got a new category that we're going to be talking about in our blog or something like that, then we can take that and add it in, and it feels seamless. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel like you took something and tacked it on, and now people are confused, like, wait, why is there this blog? And then there's another blog and everybody, it allows people to, you to say to people, oh, well, that's great. We'll add you in to what we're already doing. And it's really no problem. Huh. We're ready for your content. We're ready for it. And it meets with what we need to do strategically. So we're happy to have that conversation. That's great. And that, I mean, and that leads to the ultimate piece, which, which we've, we underscored, which was about the efficiency of developing your content yes. strategy because you know that's the biggest thing I just if we even just look at front-end content strategy people have trouble wrapping their arms around what that looks like and how to manage that and now we're adding in all this back-end technical capabilities right so so talk a little bit about efficiency where do we find those efficiencies well I think a lot of the efficiency comes from one having a structure that we can all align around it leads to less how are we going to handle this, which is what I was just talking about. But also, there's efficiency that comes when you have been thinking about back-end and content strategy as you've been moving through a project or a redesign project. If you can focus on that, you can start to build components and elements within your site that are ready to absorb and take in structured content in a different way that makes it less manual that makes it so that you can as you're adding a potential component to a new page you can just select the type of category that you'd like to pull in rather than having somebody say i'm going to manually pull in all of this content it makes it so that things can be a little bit more automated in the workflow of the content management system but also there are efficiencies in taking what is managed within your content management system and pushing that out. So if you have information that really can live within the content management system and then you can create connections to other third-party tools, then your content is consistent, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. 
it's easier your developers can pull in and grab from what they need to have from the content management system. The third party tools understand that you have a structure that you need to work within. So then you can have that conversation with them about that. So I think there are a lot of efficiencies that can come out yeah. of having a much stronger back end um, system. And it's not just websites we're talking about, right? It's absolutely. A, you're not. talking about a content strategy across all your content elements and not even just digital, right? These are offline, online, all the content that you're creating, right? Absolutely. I think one of the areas that I'm really most intrigued by right now is the way that we can take content from our content management system and start to pull that into conversation management that can happen within a call system, within a chat tool, mm -hmm. within different flows of the way that you might handle common question answer scenarios. Mm -hmm. That puts really great tools at the person working at the call center's fingertips. And I think this is really interesting because it also makes it so that when a consumer is engaging in that way with your with your organization or with your brand, they're getting a more consistent message. I think we've all been on the phone with you know different companies where we've gotten one customer center call center representative and we've gotten one answer and someone else we've gotten another answer. Yeah. I, I noticed that after we presented yesterday, we had a lot of people asking questions about how to get started. Because I think um, this is kind of a new concept for us in, in healthcare. Where not that we haven't been thinking about it. I think that we've all been informally kind of addressing back-end and front-end content strategy. But you know, what are some things that you know from your perspective, Susan? If we're like maybe one, two, three tips that people can do to maybe get started to think about it this way. Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the first things that people can do is to start to think about people around their organization that really have touch points with the consumer and, and start to bring those folks to a common table to start mm -hmm. to talk about where do we feel like we're hitting folks correctly in um, their journey with us? Where do we feel like there are some gaps? So I think that's one place. Mm -hmm. Another place that I think we can look is even if we have a small project or a small thing that we're starting to build, starting to put that back-end content strategy in the early discussions on those mm -hmm. projects. Um, and you and I have experience with this uh, on the project that we're working together on. We started talking about this basically right after we kicked off the project and started right. thinking about how are we going to structure things. Um, so I think even if it's a small project, there's, it's nice even to sometimes start small because then you can start to build some momentum. You can start to build positive case studies that then you can share with folks that might be more difficult to work with around the organization. We started off really early with starting to talk about our backend approach, our structured content. But the two things that we covered before we went there, which I thought were really critical, was governance. Yes. Right, understanding the governance, because I think that is something that we're, we've kind of had a very informal approach, yeah. at least in the health systems I've worked at, in terms of how content is created and how do we identify that and, and, and how do we structure that in a certain way. The governance structure, I think, is really important, too. And I think that's really important in the way that there are also tools that can come out of having a governance structure that people around the organization mm -hmm. can use. Mm -hmm. So when they're on their own in a separate meeting, then they have something that they know they can rely on, mm -hmm. that they can look back at to help with their questions that they may have or things that they may, to, may need to look at a little bit more. Um, and, and I think that also gives folks a little bit 
when you have a good governance structure, it also gives people a little bit more authority mm-hmm. to enforce that, not in a negative way, but in a way that says, hey, I really understand that you want to do that. This is what we've all kind of decided as our process or the way that we're going to handle this type of thing. Um, we'd love it if you want to kind of join in on what we're doing over here. But mm-hmm. Well, Susan, working with you over this project, um, it's just been really informative. I've learned a lot, um, not only so much that we can present at a conference, but you know, I'm learning more and more. And I think that's part of the the beauty of this kind of work it's that it's constantly ever evolving in part because our consumers preferences are changing and the way they consume content is changing i think that that's a big thing to keep in mind if people listening in want to learn a little bit more about you what's a good way for them to find out more well folks can find me on linkedin and on twitter my mm-hmm. handle is s yoveniti and i'll spell that it's at s i o v e n I-T-T-I. Um, I know it's not an easy last name, but uh, yeah, you can find me in those two places. Well, we'll link to them in the show notes for sure so people can just click on them and follow. I encourage you to follow follow Susan. Reach out to her because, again, I mean, it's like I, I always learn so much and I look forward to having you back on the show because I'm sure there's many other topics that we, we can go deep into. Absolutely. Thank so, you, Chris. Thank you so much. All right, special thanks uh, to Susan. Wonderful interview. It was great to uh, see both of you guys actually present back in the fall at the uh, Healthcare Internet Conference. And so she certainly uh, knows her stuff and uh, it's been a, been a pretty interesting episode. She's great. And I, w- I encourage you to go look at the blog on the Burnt Group website. We'll link to that too, because it has a lot of great content that she's written. So good stuff. Well, uh, a couple of things coming up again. Touchpoint.health is the website. We appreciate uh, all the support. Rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts, wherever you happen to be listening. Special thanks to the sponsors. And uh, we've got a couple of conferences. This, you know, We're kind of starting to ease back around to conference season again. You know, we'll have a little bit of downtime here the first couple of months of the year. But South by Southwest, again, over in March, uh, it will be the next one. Uh, I'll be there for that as I am every year doing some judging and things like that. So if you're making it out to South by in Austin, let me know. And I would love to connect. Also, you, well, we'll both be there, but you're going to be speaking at the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit there in the spring. So you can check that out as well. We'll have links in the TPS report. So again, go sign up for our weekly email. You can do that at the website, again, touchpoint.health and have links to these uh, upcoming conferences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Recommendations. What are you you recommending today? Reed, I'm going to recommend a podcast, a very small podcast. It's only four episodes of it. It was produced here locally in the Twin Cities by our local radio station called The Current, which is uh, related to Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, It's a podcast about the story of 1999, the Prince album. Looks over all of Prince's, you know, discography, but it really interviews his collaborators, other people, specifically around the time that the album 1999 was released, which happens to be one of my favorite Prince albums. I'm not sure about you, but that's my favorite. Because it's local here in Minnesota and Prince is from this area, it was kind of near and dear to my heart, and they interviewed a lot of people that were local. So I'm going to recommend it. It's called Prince, The Story of 1999. Nice. Very cool. I have to check that out for sure. 
I'm going to actually recommend an iOS app. I think it's also probably available uh, on the Android and Google Play platforms, things like that. It's just a fun, fun game. It's called Brain Out. Brain Out. Uh, it's a, like a puzzle game. So each level, you have to answer the question. They're not quite as straightforward as you think they may be. So obviously, they get harder the further you go. Uh, but it's brain teasers and riddles and things like that. So it's kind of neat. It's called Brain Out. And its uh, I think it's free. And there's probably some in ad You probably get rid of the ads if you want to pay or something like that. Ah, interesting. interesting. Is this one that you play just yourself or do you play with your family too? No, it's just yourself. It's just something to kind of pass the time uh, if you're if you're hanging out at the airport or you know doing something like that. So yeah, so brain out. There you go. Well, another great episode. Uh, appreciate uh, everybody tuning in for uh, well, I guess now the second time this decade. <laughs> for uh, Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.